Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Chris and Eric's Longbox Adventure. I'm Chris. And I am Eric. This is week free of Marvel's Merry Mutants Month. Week free of me getting the wards in the right order and not tripping up on the tongue twister. Merry Marvel's Mutants Month? Can you say say it it faster? (laughs) I already said it wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, four straight weeks of X-Men... Um, Our first two weeks, we did old-school classic material with some 60s and 80s. For the latter half of the month, we're skipping forward in time quite a bit. Uh, This week, we're going back only a couple years to 2017. It's five years now. Don't remind me of me aging. (laughs) Don't remind me of the passage of time toward death. Um, Pandemic years don't count, though, so it's okay. The topic this week is going to be Iceman. As we talked about at the end of last episode, comic numbering and volumes is a pain in the ass, so I'm going to have to be real specific about which Iceman we mean. This is the third Iceman series. It is the one from 2017, as we said. It's Iceman volume free in the sense of volumes meaning different series, but if you actually go by the trade, it will say Iceman volume one thawing out. It'll have the pretty Kevin Wada cover. It's on Marvel Unlimited, so if anyone has a subscription to that, you can get it that way. I'm sure it must be on Comixology slash Amazon, but as we've said before, we don't really recommend that you try to read comics there. A, because they blew up the interface to hell and back, and also it's Amazon. But you can find it. Last week when we discussed Days of Future Past, we talked about the mutant metaphor a lot, and what Claremont was doing with it. This week we're going to be talking about it in the context of being sort of side-by-side real actual oppressed groups being represented. Specifically, this is the series that came out shortly after Iceman was outed as being gay. So this is going to be our first time talking about an X-Men character being explicitly gay on panel. We're going to be discussing the first five issues. Before we do a full dive in with our thoughts, I'll go ahead and do our usual creative team roll call. Uh, This whole run is written by writer Cena Grace. The colorists and letterer are also consistent. We have uh, Rachelle Rosenberg and VCs Joe Sabino, respectively. Uh, The art and inking duties are a bit more split up. On the odd-numbered issues... We have Alessandro Vitti is the primary artist starting off the series, but then on issues two and four we get some fill-ins with Edgar Salazar working on pencils and Ed Tadio working on inks, and we also have Ibrahim Robertson also as a backup penciler and inker on number two, but not number four. And in terms of covers, like I said, we have Kevin Wada. He does most of the series. He does issues number one through four. And we also have Marco D'Alfonso contributes the cover to issue number five. So yeah, that gives us just the who's who of what's going on. I figure we can sort of go issue by issue as opposed to me trying to summarize the entire plot up front. That way we can just sort of dive in as the story progresses i think in this case might be a bit more natural way of doing it but i think just 
a simple thematic summing up is that this is the first series to really focus on Iceman as an out gay man and it's very much a later in life adjusting to having come out story slash part actual coming out story as it's him navigating his relationship with himself, various other X-Men members, and most importantly with his parents. I had read this multiple times before and you just read this for the first time in at least a little while. What's your overall impression of Iceman? Well, when I sat down and read these five issues on Marvel Unlimited, I went ahead and finished the rest of the 11-issue series and also read the five-issue follow-up series from the next year along. Uh, So I think it's safe to say that I really enjoyed it. That's good to hear. Yeah, I also have a fondness for these This series, I specifically was following from month to month as it came out. This came out during one of my actually regularly going to a comic shop periods. I really liked it for the most part. I remember having some ups and downs largely tied to just the art and consistency and fill-in artists. And we'll talk more about the art as we go into the specific issues. But overall, I like it a lot too. It is a testament to just hiring gay people i think more than anything else (laughs) is a testament to fucking hiring gay people and not giving me cringe-worthy straight people bullshit but with that we can go ahead and dive into issue number one this opens up with bobby drake typing away at his computer and providing the intro narration that's going to go across a lot of the issue that is him filling out a dating profile for his first time doing a dating profile period, but also just a dating profile specifically for dating men. He's essentially doing essentially a modern equivalent of what we talked about last time with the 80s constant, tell us who everyone is, tell us what their powers are. And the pertinent information is essentially... Bobby Drake is an X-Man, one of the original five. There is currently a time-displaced younger version of himself also in his life. So Cena got straddled with having to explain that. He does a good job of it, and there's good young Bobby stuff in this, but immediately the sort of premise he has to fucking explain is just ridiculous. But essentially, the younger Bobby came out first. At which point the older Bobby couldn't very well stay closeted because he'd essentially been outed partially by Jean Grey, partially by himself, and is now trying to cope with all of that and his own feelings and navigating relationships with other people. And Bobby gets a text to his phone from his mother, essentially saying that his father has had a heart attack scare and they're in the hospital, but everything's okay now. Bobby rushes there. There's lots of just passive-aggressive... We'll get into the whole thing with his parents. The relationship's not great, is the point. They do, but they're very well-written. And I'm gonna have a lot I want to talk about in the dialogue of how well this family relationship is handled. But just shitty, unsupportive parents in every way imaginable. To include regarding him being a mutant, because he's not out as gay yet, but he is out as a mutant. And while they're there... A purifier attacks the hospital because there's another mutant there. Purifiers, if you don't know, are just super generic X-Men villains of their just human mutant phobes, often with various armor, occasionally sci-fi blasters, shit like that. Sometimes to various degrees have like a religious bent to it. 
they're just armed thugs. They're not like super powered super villains or anything. They're just armed thugs, essentially. And Iceman ends up leaving his parents to go take down the purifier, uh, protect the young mutant who's being attacked, whose name is Michaela, and... The issue essentially ends with Bobby leaving the hospital after a final frustrating conversation with his parents. Yeah, it's basically just a day in the life of him being a hero and being shat on by his family because of it. Yeah, I... So, like, the opening with um, establishing, like, the dating profile is, I think, a really good... Like, this first issue has to sell you on the whole idea of an Iceman solo series... Um, which, like, frankly, I think all the complicated stuff with him coming out should have just happened in this and been written by Cena Grace and not Brian Michael Bendis in... Was that all new where that happened? It was all new, wasn't it? I think it was all new. It wasn't in the Uncanny run. Which, like, I mean, glad it happened and Iceman's out now, but from what I understand, it's very messy. But, like, him spending time with his younger self and then bit where they ask him along on their date like because his younger self is going on a date with his boyfriend and he's like do you want to come too it's like the weirdest fucking thing (laughs) it is very funny i will point out this is the period when marvel is still pushing the inhumans really hard and i there is tension between mutants and inhumans and iceman's boyfriend is named romeo younger inhuman yes Oh, younger Iceman's Ugh. boyfriend as an inhuman named Romeo, as in Romeo and Juliet. Uh, Bobby has terrible taste. Terrible taste in men. That's disgusting. You're just begging me to pick inhumans sooner and sooner to read. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently the Black Bolt solo series that came out of this was good, but I can't imagine anything else was. Yeah, that's about it. <sighs> but there's... There's so much in this that I just really like how it's written. But in the start that we're already talking about, one thing I appreciate with the dating profile is it gives us Bobby specifically describing himself, giving us a very quick uh, introduction to Cena Grace's talk, to Cena Grace's sense of Bobby's voice. And historically, Bobby has largely been a jokester class clown character slash sometimes hothead. Grace doesn't go into the hothead part so much as just the class clown. I think throughout Grace does a really good job of just portraying this man's horrible jokes where when I read it there will occasionally be one where I'm like that one's too bad but then I'm like well that's good because it's too bad because that's what Bobby is doing you know and there's multiple characters that comment on how half of his jokes land you know and humor as defense mechanism yada 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 yeah it's a great bit with uh Kitty Pride. I was trying to remember if she was going by Kate by this point no she was still going by Kitty yeah it's still Kitty yeah there's even humor because it's a dating profile there's even humor in the way he's spelling things out where he goes, I'm X-Tra, hilarious. And then just lots of ice puns, and just the way that anyone else would joke about Iceman, he's joking about himself. Uh, Real quick before I forget later, I don't want to forget. I do also want to note in the lettering for these opening panels that every instance of him typing into the dating site interface will have at the very end that sort of marker that you see when you're like typing in text online or an award document. I don't know what it's called, 
but just like the yeah, sort of function either. that like tells you where you are in the document and i just appreciate that detail yeah that's a really nice touch and just like the the um the font choice and stuff it, it looks much more like a computer screen than most narrative captions do because of course this is something he's actually typing out i think that the hothead stuff is less focused on here because i think that by this point bobby's earned his confidence like, this isn't the teen Bobby, and especially as teen Bobby's running around, you want to make them distinct. I think the distinct thing that's portrayed, certainly in the opening, is old Bobby has actually figured enough shit out that his confidence isn't unwarranted. Like, almost every, like, problem that comes up in these, he winds up being able to handle just by applying his powers in, like, inventive ways. Yeah, and, like, there is a lot of anxiety from him here, but he's definitely, like, matured enough to handle it in a different way. And I think it might also be reflective of how much these are focusing on him as a teacher and the life he's built, not just as, like, a superhero, but as a mentor to younger students. I think makes sense that he's sort of aging into a relatively more calm sort of approach. I will note how fucking awkward it is when he's walking out of the danger room after kicking his younger self's ass in a training fight and Romeo's there and the exchange between the two lovers is sup dude and hey bro <laughs> like that's just funny to me but yeah young Bobby inviting older Bobby to the date clearly not wanting him to say yes is very funny and of course Bobby refuses and then there's just, they work in an age joke about Bobby, and then right after that, as he's, like, looking at photos on the Xavier School wall of, like, all the X-Men and his friends, that's when he gets the text from his mom and has to race to the hospital. Well, Bobby is, what, probably exactly the same age as Peter Parker, so he's eternally 25. He's not that old. Yeah, it's just the sort of, like, I guess, like, no matter how young they are, if you were a younger version of yourself meeting an older version, mm. you would still be, like, old me, you know? Well, 15 years have passed since Fantastic Four number one, but everyone's only aged 10. Marvel time is fucking weird. Yeah, like, in my head, the way I read all of this, because I refuse to go any younger, I can't think of the original X-Men as any younger than, like, 33 to 35. Although, yeah, in all reality, they're probably officially, like, 25 or something, but... As the youngest, I think Bobby being 30 would make sense. Like, in this. Now he's 33. Yeah, which, like, I think it's probably safe to say there's meant to be like a 15-ish year age gap, which is pretty significant, especially when the younger self is the teenager who hasn't done any maturing at all, which adds to sort of the like awkward but interesting aspect of the two Bobby relationship where the like teen X-Men back through time thing was always just sort of, I didn't care because it just felt unneeded and complicated and whatever, but... I think Iceman is one of the best examples of them actually taking the weird premise and doing something with it, and that you have the contrast between older Bobby is obviously older and in many ways more mature, but also is being forced to learn and mature himself and his own identity by the younger Bobby. It just sort of sets up a tension that one wouldn't necessarily expect from this sort of dynamic. 
Yeah, um, from what I've read, the Gene stuff is also fairly interesting, just because old Gene was dead at the time, and then Cyclops gets to meet his space dad as a teenager still, and and have like a, a relationship with him, and um, I've read the Champion stuff with Cyclops as well, and that was good. But that might just be because Champions is pretty good, so far as, like, Avengers-type books get, anyway. But bringing the O5 back at all just seemed like such a weird fucking idea. Especially in hindsight, it's like, I guess they want they wanted to have new mutant characters to do stuff with, but I think they were still not allowed to create new mutant characters at this point. So I guess that's how you do it. Yeah, I think... In this case, they do about as good as they could with it, though. But moving forward to the hospital scene, there's just a lot of just specific small lines that I really love, both in Bobby's humor and depicting just the unsavory aspects of these parents' personalities, which some examples we have just the dad in the bed remarking how Bobby missed out on his mother's birthday. And Iceman goes, I think that happened when I was literally saving a friend from Apocalypse. I can have an edible arrangement here in no time. In fairness, I, my parents would shit on me if I missed one of their birthdays, at least a little bit. To be fair, you're not an X-Man, and you weren't literally <laughs> saving their lives by Probably missing not. it. Probably not. But yeah, and then another shot of the mom going... Um, they mentioned having gotten a new house, which Bobby did not know. And this is sort of the degree to which they don't talk, that it's possible that they have moved in the time since they last spoke. See, the edible arrangement would have gone to the wrong fucking place. Yeah, Bobby couldn't win. But it, he should have just said, oh, clearly I did remember, but you'd fucking moved! Yeah, but... Uh, the mom goes, oh, we sold the house. It was too big, and the neighborhood was getting... dot dot dot. You know. So I do know that old comics have established that his dad and therefore his mother for putting up with it are very racist. A woman Bobby dated Opal Tanaka? Yeah, yeah, Tanaka. Well, she was Asian. Uh, Japanese, right? Yeah. Japanese. Yeah, she was Japanese. And, um, yeah, they were incredibly unpleasant to her in some of the other stuff that I've read. Uh, so Iceman's parents are awful beyond belief, and they continue to be so. It's so passive-aggressive. Literally everything they say is, like, undercutting him in some way. How do they not know? So, his mother asks if he has any new girlfriends, and specifically asks, whatever happened with the green-haired one? And I... How the fuck do they not know Lorna's name? Like, in all seriousness, how many fucking comics has Iceman been going after Lorna in? Like, it's all over the 60s stuff. All over the early 2000s stuff with Annie Gazakanian and Havoc in the Chuck Austin run. I'm, I'm like, this is a 10-year thing, essentially, probably, in-universe, and they haven't even bothered to learn her name. I think it just speaks to how disappointed and sort of... I don't know if bitter is the right word. I feel like that... Like, it is bitterness, but it's sort of a different specific flavor of it where they're just kind of tired and he's just not the son they want and they don't approve of any of his life decisions and it's just sort of distant in a way you know and the way that they talk and their specific remarks it's like the book and the relationship 
is already about disappointment at him being gay before he's even come out because it's so steeped in the mutant metaphor where it's, you know, about that. So thematically, it's already about being gay. But then we get the double whammy of the gay coming out in a few issues. So he's doing the intersection of both. So all of these parental-child relationship struggles are literally and metaphorically about being gay, whether him being gay is being talked about or not. And just the way they undercut, it just flows so realistically, and I just love how it's written. Bobby, have you tried not being a mutant? Sorry, that's from X-Men 2, which, good movie, uh, but also fuck you, Brian Singer. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, good movie, fuck you, Brian Singer. That scene is probably why Marvel were okay with Iceman coming out. It's, well, that scene's, like, another example of, like, Iceman being gay wasn't allowed to happen until Brian Michael Bendis did it, which there's a lot you could jump into there of just only straight people being allowed to do things, and most specifically straight white men. But also Iceman has a long history of creators having that sort of thing in mind for him, with X2 would have been over 10 years before this. And then you had other creators thinking about it 10 and 20 years before that in various stories. Yeah, Lobdell, um, I think, didn't Marjorie Lou try to yeah. do it? Austin, I think, tried to do it as well with the North Star stuff. Yeah, they all actively tried to do it. And I don't know if it was intentional 100% in the 80s solo series, but that also has an air of it to that. Wasn't that DeMatteis? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so I just... I tried either way. The Imateus is good. Yeah, it's good. This series is a long time coming in a lot of ways, in that I don't think there's ever been a moment in time where this character has been taken this seriously, whether from a gay perspective or just in general any other way. And then especially the whole grappling of sexuality thing is like, here is us doing a thing that has arguably been very easy to read on the page since the mid-1980s. Yeah, I, this is kind of... This series has kind of fixed Iceman, in a way. Because, I mean, he is the X-Men character that Chris Claremont was not interested in. Like, the only one. He did something with everyone else. Iceman just leaves. Yeah, like, the O5... Cyclops stays around a lot. Jean obviously gets elevated... Angel shows up to be hot and rich for a little bit. And he gets Archangel later. Yeah, and then Beast at least gets to be in Dark Phoenix, so he's not around a lot, but he's at least around for the big moment. Bobby doesn't do shit in the classic period. I don't remember if I mentioned any of this towards the end of last episode when we announced the topic or if we just talked off air, but Bobby is the, like, simultaneously classic and not classic X-Men character because he's very famous because he's an original and has been in lots of cartoons but he is not in any of the most important or remembered x-men comics ever yeah he's he's a lee kirby character who strangely hasn't mattered for a large chunk of his history yeah which is part of why this series is such a breath of fresh air uh getting back to the plot of issue one as they're having one of their just really tense conversations like i mentioned earlier we have the purifier attack and i think 
the main consistent thing in the villain choices across the series is that they all sort of serve more of a thematic or metaphorical role in the plot more so than any individual character being a direct antagonist for Bobby specifically. You know, he doesn't really develop specific rapports with the way that, say, Batman has the Joker. You know, like, these are purifiers. These are literally nameless, bigoted humans. So it's essentially, on one hand, it's Iceman fighting bigotry, literally, and on a meta level, it's sort of, well, we have to pack a fight into this issue because editorial demands it. So we'll just have some douchebag show up for Iceman to kick his ass, get him off screen, and reinforce the bigotry vibe thematically, but also not introduce any other baggage so that we can just do that and then get back to the real plot, which is everything of Bobby and his parents. Yeah, um, I like the fact that the guy's wearing a football helmet that he's painted a cross on. It's hilarious. Are Purifiers strike William Stryker's lot? Reverend Stryker's? I lose track of the mutant hate groups. I honestly can't remember. Yeah, like, I would believe it. Friends of Humanity is great in Creed. I think so, yeah. Or Purifier is a Trask thing. One of those. Yeah, it's just mutant hate group, or anti-mutant hate group, rather. And this man does look very silly, with his, like, football helmet and very, like, I put this together myself sort of vibe. Huge shoulder pads. Um, I'm honestly surprised it takes Bobby this long to deal with him, especially considering how much better Bobby is at, like, dispatching threats, even just later in the five issues that we're reading. Like, this is one asshole. I honestly, I don't think he said this much this explicitly, but I honestly suspect it's about meeting a quota of how many pages have to have fights on them. Like, I honestly think that's probably a major part of why it goes on so long. That's fair. And admittedly, it's a superhero comic. You kind of want to have a bit of action. And it's good to see Bobby getting to use his powers in a cool way. Like, that's part of what you read these for. Yeah. And, like, I think the real badass power moments are going to come in future issues... But I do want to go ahead and just say that I like the way that VD draws Iceman. I like the way he draws all the people. I'll get into more specific detail of that later. But, like, specifically the way he draws, like, Iced Up Bobby. I like the combination of VD's work and then Rosenberg's coloration, where, like, Bobby's ice is, like, partial blue, partial white. Like, the coloration of the, like, light hitting it is just really well detailed. You get just bits of like spiky shoulder like humanoid but with a little bit of that fun sort of jagged edge on top of it it just looks really good and then rosenberg will also do like bright pinks and oranges in the backgrounds that then pop really well against the light blues it's just pleasing to look at in my opinion yeah and um the art by vd is it's very detailed um but there's always a really good sense of motion i really love especially the way that he draws bobby's parents because every single one of their facial expressions even when they're smiling still manages to make them look really unpleasant like the smiles look fake yeah like it's such a specific i'm looking at this one shot of the way his mother's lips is drawn especially where it's very like consciously put together and god i'm struggling to find the words to describe these expressions but 
you can just see why Bobby's relationship is so fucked up with them, because it just looks daunting, and just the weight of so much expectation, and I suppose you could say, like, they just look very set in themselves and their views and what they think of Bobby and what he should do. And, like, they have, I don't know, maybe it's just an exaggeration, but, like, compared to Bobby, they have no anxiety at all, you know, in the sense of just being very set in the way they look at everything and very stern and, like, prim and proper. And I like the nuances and these facial expressions a lot across them and then also just the rest of the character i think there's a good amount of emoting throughout yeah yeah i think it's great and then the end of the issue we get introduced to michaela we get introduced to michaela um she's just gonna be like a relatively minor character in the rest of the run she winds up becoming a student at the school she can freeze her spit it gets solid like when she spits it becomes solid which is a hilarious power I specifically love her interaction with Bobby, where she says, This is so bomb. A real-life X-Man saved my life. My mom's gonna go mental. Makes having my cruddy power almost worth it. And Bobby, being the supportive older mutant figure, goes, Well, let me be the judge of that which makes you mutant. Please don't have bone-growing power. Now, I love Mero, but if there was a real-life mutant power that would be absolutely fucking horrifying... It would be if someone just had fucking bones growing out of their skin. I'm trying to think of the pa- mutant power I'd like to see least in live action, and I, I that's up there. Yeah, yeah, that's unsettling. Wait, with Marrow, do daggers come just, like, out of places where there's already skin, or is it just, like, the ones that are already sticking out of her body? She can pull out all sorts of shit. Ugh, like, she okay. effectively was just whipping bones out any which way all the time. But yeah, Marrow aside, do you have any more thoughts on issue one before we go ahead and move on? Yeah, uh, one last thing. Um, after the fight, Bobby's mother asks him if he killed anyone. He's like, what? No, I'm a hero. And she says, well, things happen whenever you become a mutant. Which I think is maybe the most characterizing line of his parents. Like, you already got the whole deal with them from their conversation earlier, but that's just... The level of not fucking getting it is astonishing. And like, you know, to what degree willful or not willful not getting it, you know, a very sort of keep it to yourself, keep it closeted sort of thing, even with the metaphorical difference, you know? Um, And then at the end of the issue, uh, he, instead of actually describing himself on the dating app, just puts a little shrug emoji, (laughs) which I thought was fun. Yeah, it's... I think it's a really successful first issue at establishing what the series is going to be about. Uh, So then we're on to issue two. Um, This one focuses on the relationship between uh, Bobby and Kitty Pride, who shockingly dated in the past, which... (sighs) The thing is, with Marvel aging... It's like everyone except for the youngest mutants are now adults, and you just kind of have to take it that they're all of equivalent ages. Except, if you think about it all, and Kitty Pride having joined the X-Men when she was 13, after Bobby had been on panel for like 20 years, it's just like, oh. <laughs> but So, like, he's the youngest of the first generation of X-Men. She's by far the youngest of the second generation of x-men essentially she's equivalent with the third generation which is the new mutants 
it's also just they literally only did that because of the movie in in the comics like i have read basically every x-man comic up until like 1994 at this point and i have literally never seen those two on panel together what the fuck happens in the rest of that time to make them like a good match the writers it's because the fucking movie did it in in x-men 3 also fuck you brett ratner okay yeah you just kind of gotta not think about it (sighs) but essentially there's been a report of a mutant losing track or of a mutant losing control of his powers uh specifically powers that sort of fuck with the electronic equipment as well as with other mutant powers it's essentially just a fuck up whatever is around him power and Bobby is going on a mission to rescue the mutants, gets on the X-Jets, which before he even sees Kitty, I will point out Bobby running and going, oh man, are they putting me in a jet with old man Logan? He's on every mission. So just a Wolverine's <laughs> and too many book jokes. Well, it's better than that because this is what Wolverine was... Logan is dead at this point, And Wolverine right now is Laura... But of course, Laura Kinney being Wolverine, she gets to be in her book and no other books because we've brought in an older version of Logan from another universe and now he's in every book. So we can still have Wolverine in every book even when he's dead. He just is Wolverine. I rolled my fucking eyes when he showed up and it's like, it's just Wolverine but like 10% more angsty. Yeah, but it's not Logan in this issue. Bobby sees Kitty in the cockpit of the plane And it's just like, oh god. And they're having very awkward banter on the plane right there. Bobby's sort of deflecting invitations to confide emotionally. And they end up essentially the Young Mutants is hiding out in a Walmart equivalent, getting attacked by a bunch of people. And Bobby and Kitty have to try and save him and get him back to safety while the Young Mutants' powers are fucking up their powers. So they can't use their powers very much or have to be very careful or else Kitty will just go phasing through everything or Bobby might accidentally kill someone just by trying to put an ice wall up. It's just high stress. Everyone's running around. The kid's a little shit. Really bratty and annoying. So getting on their nerves as they're already frustrated because they can't use their powers to their full potential and they have sort of the moment mid everything where kitty is frustrated with bobby because he never came out to her and she had to hear it through the grapevine and she specifically heard it from gold balls which is gold balls is a joke character up until literally 2019 i guess what two years from now he becomes really important but he's he's a mutant who can create gold balls. They aren't made of gold. They're just made of, like, stuff that looks gold-ish. He just makes spheres. He just makes these eggs. These golden eggs. Yeah. And by the end of the issue, there's, like, the fight scene they work in is essentially just, like, Iceman using some dupes to hold off the bigots and such. And they ultimately get um, the young mutant to safety at the Institute. And Kitty and Bobby essentially have a moment where Kitty's like, look, you don't have to talk to me if you don't want to, but the invitation is there, and everyone loves you, and we want to make sure you have someone to talk to. And it's all well written. I don't mean this as a criticism of the writing, but just a statement 
that Kitty Pride is kind of a douche at various points in this. You know, I just... Being the resident faggot on the podcast, anytime in real life or fiction that there's just a sort of bit of, like, a straight person, and we're going to treat Kitty as a straight person here because she's been editorially mandated to never come out, for all intents and purposes in this narrative, a straight person. Yep. Just doing the whole sort of... There's sort of a sense of entitlement of, why didn't you tell me? Why did I have to hear from gold balls? You know, that my ex-boyfriend is gay. And I love the way Bobby puts it, where he goes, you were in space aside. I can't really place this whole I'm gay thing on my own terms because there's a little time-displaced version of me running around with a model boyfriend Never mind having to save the world on the rego. I haven't even had the time to tell my parents. So yeah, I'm sorry I opted to avoid having a hard and exhausting conversation with you. And then it sort of dials down in terms of anger with Kitty just saying I could have been there for you and things start just like settle down. It's well written. I personally just care less about Kitty Pride than a bunch of X-Men fans too. So... I don't especially care about, like, this issue in comparison to a lot of the rest of the series, but yeah, it's a decently written sort of Bobby has a moment with one of his friends sort of thing. As the resident Kitty fan, I want to point out this is chemically hair-straightened Kitty, who doesn't count. (laughs) God. Uh... This is Marvel is for however long a period of time, just either literally or... I don't think Cena necessarily would have forgot so much as Marvel editorial on X-Men Gold, but this is for, what, like 20 years we're just not going to acknowledge that Kitty is Jewish anymore? Bendis does it. But Bendis is also Jewish. So, yeah. But also, like... Yeah, that's the whole thing. My favorite moment in this issue, though, is uh, Bobby being a fucking genius and solving the problem of the kid fucking with their powers by punching him in the face and knocking him out so he isn't accidentally using his powers anymore. That's gold. That's the best panel. It's very funny. It's it's literally an adult knocking a child unconscious, and it's funny. <laughs> it's well, it's it's like it's like so. This is the bit here where like this is the hot-headed thing. Or it would be if Bobby weren't so experienced at this point that he knows that he's right to do this and that this is the best solution right now. And that it's clear that with whatever amounts of finesse he's hitting him just enough to knock him out, he'll be fine. But the kid's powers won't work when he's unconscious. And right now, if they don't shut the powers off, they're all literally going to die. So Yeah, like Bobby has a lot of problems with the personal relationships in this. He doesn't have any problems with the X-Men shit. Which I think is really good. I love seeing a confident in terms of superheroing superhero. Like, that's the thing he's got down. Yeah, and I think that's another, like, important aspect of what this arc is doing is establishing him as being really competent. Because he's always been the sort of Joker character and side focus and never the main star. He doesn't have a long history of, like, badass moments, you know? And then there's, like, some past stories will explicitly be like, there's something holding you back from getting better of your powers. Hint, hint, you're gay. But this is showing how, despite all that, 
he still has all the years of experience and he's much better at being a superhero than he would even necessarily let on by being the Joker. Yeah, yeah, I just, I, I like seeing him, and in general I like seeing, like, certainly because this character's been around 60 years at this point. He should be good at this shit. Yeah, it's just, like, satisfying to see arc-wise as part of this character. I don't know if reinvention is too strong of a word, but effectively reinvention, like, you know, like you said, making the character matter. Which, moving on to issue number three, this is framed around Bobby coming home to his parents' new house for the first time, and more of the tense, passive-aggressive stuff, with lots of just digs at his life choices as they're having dinner, and he's trying his best to connect with his parents, but it's just very stressful. In the midst of all of it, there's another purifier attack in retribution for... Bobby taking down the other purifier and getting him sent to jail. And this leads to the purifiers threatening Bobby and his family, which on the family's part leads to a few of their more likable, endearing, and sort of redeeming moments. And that, at least in these literal life or death circumstances, they're standing up for their children in a way. And ultimately ends with Iceman icing up, taking care of the purifier problem. Uh, We'll get into more specific lines in a minute. But essentially, they save the day, but in the process, they have blown the hell out of the house. So Bobby has essentially tried to have a nice connecting with his parents' moment, and the house gets attacked, and ultimately, he half blows up his parents' house. That's that Parker luck, but it's not Peter Parker. (laughs) So the opening here, uh, so so it opens with Bobby um, sending a text out to like a bunch of different people uh, to like come out so people don't hear it through the grapevine anymore. It's very funny. Yeah. And also, half of these people, if this happened to me, I would never speak to them again. When I tell you, if I ever came out to someone and they talked to me the way that Spider-Man or Human Torch talked to Bobby, yeah, I, I would I, never talk again. Uh, um, as a as a fan of of both of those characters, what the fuck is this? <laughs> it's just really I, funny, and I don't think we're meant to take any of these lines super seriously. But uh, well, well, so Northstar wants to meet up with him to get coffee. Which makes it because it doesn't Northstar like want to date Bobby Bobby during the Austin run, but Bobby's like, no, I'm straight. I'm ninety percent sure that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Northstar's married now, but it's still just it's it's he's the only one who's got a good reaction. <laughs> Lorna's reaction's fucking insane. A part of me always kind of thought so. That's probably why I picked Alex. Why would you say that? Just go ahead and bring up your relationship drama from 40 years ago in publication history. Just like, yeah, yeah. (sighs) Which, another, on the topic of Kitty Pride and entitlement, another thing, uh, don't do for straight people. If someone comes out to you and you say that you already knew... That homosexual is morally allowed to murder you on the spot. There is no excuse to ever say that. But yeah, Johnny's line, it is really funny. Like, I'm calling them assholes, but this is really funny. Human Torch goes, 
Flame on, literally, ha ha. Okay, actually, I would buy Johnny saying that, but I would hope that in text form he would have enough sense to not send it. If this was an in-person conversation, he would have wound up saying that. And Spidey goes, Huh, you'd think your fashion sense would tingle a little harder. That doesn't even make s- Why would Bobby know about Spider-Sense? But they were roommates from that time that they were in a frupple with Firestar. I, I don't care that it's not canon and it's just the cartoon. My ongoing question with that is because it comes up in, like, the later issues of the series we're not covering now. And I'm just like, wait, did that happen in the comics at some point? Like- when in the comics did Firestar and Spider-Man and Iceman hang out for an extended period of time? Because it, it, I've not read that. <laughs> I think it's one of those things where it didn't happen, but occasionally we just pretend like it did for sake of the cartoon nostalgia, and it's just kind of fun and fine with me. I'm if we just kind of have too. them be I just, friends. I just find it so weird. And then my last question is, why the fuck did he even bother telling Boom Boom? Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I don't know. Boom Boom was one of the x-factor students for a little bit so they have met but like it's like maybe for five issues an inferno happened in the middle of them yeah like maybe they befriend each other more in a story that neither of us is aware of it's just the joke last line of new phone who this and i really love the opening dinner and arrival scene where like his mom opens the door still has her oven mitts on from cooking does the whole i get to give you the tour of the house thing and bobby remarks on how all the pictures of him are from high school and she goes the good old days and then he goes what's that supposed to mean oh stop being defensive honey that was the last time we were a unit when you lived with us and had the whole world ahead of you before my boy had to fight for the cause and then he goes, if I see my CPA license framed in any of these rooms. I keep forgetting that he's an accountant. They are laying on thick the, we sure love a version of you that never grew up. <sighs> yeah, yeah. It, fuck these people. It's so belittling. And it's just, I just love how they're written. Like this dialogue is really superb. And we get more of the sort of keep it under wraps thing where he starts to tell a story and he gets interrupted by the dad going, can we not talk about the mutant stuff tonight? And Bobby goes, on a scale of one to mutant stuff, most of my stories land around the mutant stuff end of the spectrum. It's basically you two and the barista at Coffee A Go Go who don't fall in that category. And then the dad goes, it's on the news all the time. I see posters and flyers all over town for rallies and whatnot. You get to be you all the time and no one's mad about it anymore. So why can't we talk about something normal tonight? Again, he's not out yet and they're fully just talking about being gay. <laughs> yeah, this is... It, it, it makes so much sense that it takes Bobby so long to come out because he has seen exactly how his parents would react his whole life because it's harder to hide that you're a mutant because at some point you start accidentally turning things into ice and you've got to learn how to handle that yeah yeah and like Bobby just voices his frustration that he's trying to do the olive branch thing and they're making fun of him to include even just mentioning his job at which point they joke about his job and ask about if he clocks in when he's wearing his uniform. Just a lot of, if being an X-Man's important, why do you not have a 401k? And... Actually, that is a good question, though. 
See now, I always assumed in my head that of course they would have them because it's Charles Xavier bankrolling, but how the fuck could they not? He's teaching a class, we see that in this. He's a teacher. Yeah. He has a real job. Here's the question. It's a teaching job, but it's not traditional education district. It's at Xavier's private school. Is Charles Xavier pro or anti-union? Charles is anti-union. You know the pay scales at that school are real fucked up. Uh, I, (laughs) yeah. Bobby has a real job, and that real job is teacher and militant peacekeeper. Yeah. Same job. Yeah. Bobby goes to do the dishes to have a moment away from them, at which point a gas bomb canister comes flinging through the window. He ices up, uh, starts taking on purifiers, takes down a single one first, and then is making his way back through the house, does a Bugs, or not Bugs Bunny, what's the name of the hunter in Looney Tunes? Oh, um, um, oh my god, see, I can normally remember, but now I can't. Yeah, just the one in the hat who's always going, I'm hunting rabbits, and is always, like, trying to fuck Bugs Bunny when Bugs is in drag. Just does an impression of that, but talk about hunting purifiers. Elmer Fudd? Elmer Fudd! There's, like, an Elmer Fudd Batman comic that nearly won an Eisner, which I haven't read, but yeah. Yeah, Elmer Fudd, that's it. Yeah, he does his best Elmer Fudd bit. Nimrod kept coming to mind, but that's what he calls him because that's the hunter. Yeah. And again, throughout this issue, just reiterating the point before of how really nicely done the coloration and pencil work is done with the like fracturing and texture of his iced up form and the way that light is glittering off of the various surfaces on his body. And his horrible father has a good moment where it seems like he pretends to have one of his heart moments and his hand is like reaching toward whatever you call these tools by the stove of a house. I can't think of what this thing is called. It looks like a shovel. It's a stove shovel. Yeah, I guess just like for putting in coal or whatever. If you have a fireplace, send us an email. I have not had a fireplace since my house growing up, and I never knew what these things were called. But basically just a tool that is heavy and metal enough that it would fuck someone up if you hit him in the face with it. Sadly, not the poker. Um, Should have used the poker on the guy. Yeah, but just like fake falls in such a way that he can get his arm going towards the like holder of the stove tools grabs the thing and beats one of the purifiers in the face with it which is frankly a really cool probably about as badass as any civilian moments in a superhero comic is ever going to be and we have some sort of uh philosophical stuff with the father and the parents and the purifiers and for as bigoted as the father and mother are in their daily lives. It's very much a sort of, don't you come and tell us what to do with your bigotry about our son, sort of. In this case, the sort of mutant metaphor is packing nuance in just the sort of way that bigotry of any kind is not a simple yes or no. And not that, I don't think the Drakes would call themselves allies, so not (laughs) not to that degree but just like in the sense that like you can be bigoted in multiple ways and I don't want to say a spectrum because I don't think it's that linear you know you can hold thoughts even if you're not aware of it or just you can have conflicting thoughts you know point being it doesn't all just make a simple sense a simple yes or no of either this person 
is immediately outwardly homophobic and hateful, or they don't have a bigoted bone in their body. You know, like, this is doing a good job of showing the reality of how people are and just how much more nuanced their actual accustomed attitudes are. So I really appreciate that aspect of this. Bobby's parents are bigots, but when someone actually wants to murder their son for being a mutant, they're like, well, that's wrong. That's, yeah. I think there's like a thing in the 90s with Graydon Creed where his dad does that too. Like they go to one of his rallies and he speaks up against Graydon Creed because Graydon Creed is just up there like, hey, why don't we genocide them? Genocide's fun. Yeah, it's very, you can't kill my family. I love them. You need to let them be belittled and dehumanized by me. You can't kill them. It's too nice. You gotta make them suffer. God. But also, in that sort of thing, just, like, nicety is sort of at the crux of it. Because, like, the Drakes, you know, they don't think they're doing anything wrong, even as they do all these hurtful, just really blatantly disrespectful things. In the end, Iceman takes down the purifiers to include using his, like, his ice powers and his hand against this man's chest to, like, brand him with an X on the chest with just the intense cold. In fairness, the guy had just been holding a gun to his dad's head, like, two pages ago. Oh, yeah, I'm not blaming him. I'm just, like, trying to think of, like, how to describe this for audio format. (laughs) It's kind of cool, honestly. Cold branding. Yeah, and... Towards the end, the mom is coming out of the ruins of the house. Bobby's just like, oh shit, this looks bad. The purifier does a whole thing of, you will never be loved, mutants will never be accepted, which just has all the added weights of Bobby's relationship with the parents and then the gay stuff that we haven't even got to yet. And the issue wraps up with the next morning. Bobby brings some fellow Xavier students and staff by to help with the reconstruction and the dad essentially says you've done enough we don't need the neighbors looking and seeing more sore thumbs sticking out with the mutants helping out it's a really mean thing to say about glob what did he do to you yeah like specifically it is glob and a knoll so like visible mutants and then just a big beefy guy who i just sort of yeah i was gonna say i assume it's colossus russian yeah And there's sort of reconciliations too strong of a ward, but sort of a softer moment with Bobby and the mom at the end where she just says that they need time, but that she'll convince the dad for them to make a trip to the mansion and sort of meet him on his turf there. And Bobby's just like, okay. And Glob in the background is like, does this mean we're off the hook? (laughs) for helping clean up glob is made of paraffin wax i don't know how much help he would be yeah like is he super strong or was he only strong and rioted xavier's because he was on kick i don't know he keeps chickens i haven't seen glob in an action scene except for in that series he got turned into a triceratops once huh it was uh, it was a Sauron story when he was turning people into dinosaurs rather than curing cancer. That was Spider Man was teaching essentially the special class from New X Men because Logan had put it in his will that Spider Man should teach at the Xavier Mansion. We're giving you all a preview of next year's second annual Marvel's Merry Mutants Month. <laughs> I do think we we always need to do a Sauron story in it, and that would be the one to pick. That's the other one. 
Uh, for now, though, moving forward to Iceman number four, this is essentially... I'm going to sort of breeze past this one a little more quickly for getting to five, but number four is that the bratty kid he and Kitty rescued in issue number two has vanished from the mansion, is out hanging out in New York, and has specifically been found and preyed upon by Dokken, who is... Is it... It's a son, right? Is it son yeah. slash clone? No, he's he's Wolverine's son, because um, he's he's biracial. He's Wolverine's son with a Japanese woman during one of the infinite number of times Wolverine's been to Japan. He's he's his evil son at this point. I I know Akihiro, which is his real name from um, the Krakoan era X Factor, uh, and I really liked him in that. And thought he was really cool. And I was like, well, I know he used to be a villain. And I have heard very bad things. And this has mostly confirmed them because I like this series. And I still don't like him as the villain in this. Yeah. He comes back in the issues beyond the ones we're covering today as well. And in both my memory of those. Because it's been a minute since I reread those. But my memory of that and then just rereading number four. I think Dokken is the villain here that I care the least about in this run, largely because I mentioned what I did before about the villains in this series being like metaphorical stand-ins that sort of just exist to provide the fight so that Bobby can then get back to their real plot, you know, and those stand-ins will just sort of at least exemplify the whole bigotry theme. With Dokken, it's just, here is a predatory asshole and essentially the whole thing just ends with Bobby going on a trip to try and rescue the kid from Dokken. Uh He fails, although he does get some licks in on Dokken at the fight. They have a little bit of, I guess, forced sexual chemistry dancing for a minute, or at least potentially partially forced because one of Dokken's powers is charm powers, essentially manipulating pheromones and people's feelings. So there is like a bit of a like sexual tension for a couple panels. But essentially it's just Bobby goes to rescue this brat and you've just flipped in the issue to the best page, which I'll <laughs> shout out. It's not literally the Hellfire Club that he's going to, but it's effectively a Hellfire Club. It's just a bougie private event. And Bobby... Bondage. What? Oh, yeah. <laughs> less bondage and bobby sneaks in like in fancy attire holding an elaborate sculpture of a horse that he has just whipped up with his powers that he pretends is just like the sort of weird ice sculpture that rich people would have at their party so sneaks in is just like guy you gotta let me in i'm already late my boss is gonna be so pissed and he cuts through the kitchen drops the horse off in the garbage on his way through before making his way to the dance floor and everything. And yeah, it just goes from dancing with Dokken to freezing him, trying to save the boy, but the boy doesn't want to be helped. The boy ultimately leaves in a copter while Bobby is still fighting Dokken, who he impales on a gigantic like snowflake shaped sculpture, which is very bloody and a very cool use of the powers, frankly. <laughs> For context, Dokken has Wolverine's healing factor and claws, as well as his disturbing pheromone thing. So, like, Bobby can feel free to kind of let loose a bit. Uh, what were your thoughts on this issue, I suppose? Were there any other, like, specific moments you wanted to mention? I really wanted to like Akihiro as the villain, 
but it doesn't work because he is too awful. Like, what this should have been is he should have been Bobby's Catwoman. Like, if you changed it so that the sexual tension between them was genuine and Akihiro wasn't such a fucking creep, I could see this being fun. But he's too awful, and the pheromone thing makes it too fucked up and weird for me to really enjoy it. I have to wonder if it could have been better if the series just had been supported more by editorial and if it had been allowed to, like, go longer. You know, like, I have to wonder if Grace would have handled the relationship pacing a little differently if he just had literally more page time. But as is, just, like, the sexual chemistry thing just really isn't interesting to me either. Yeah, like, this, the first page where they're dancing... I was like, oh, is this going to be like a Catwoman thing? Because I could get behind doing a Catwoman thing. You Batman Catwoman, like, because like, the criminal and the superhero. But then it just, yeah. It, the problem is Akio's too awful for there to be any genuine chemistry. I like that Bobby doesn't fall for this shit and just freezes him during the dance. Like, he slowly freezes him so he doesn't notice. That was cool. Yeah, it's another good use of his powers. Which, like, I think a good thing to this arc across the issues is just sort of, like, showing more and more power usage in neat ways, which is really going to play out in number five in a minute. But, yeah, like, this is well-written enough in, like, what it's trying to do, and that, like, the dialogue is still good, we have our misgivings with, like, Dokken as a antagonist, but I can at least appreciate that this issue is still, like, reinforcing the Bobby as a teacher element. Yeah, um, Amp's a little shit. Amp is the, the kid that they rescued who's now hanging out with Dokken. He just sucks. I have never seen him after this, and I am fine with that. I won't feel upset if I never see him in the background of a panel on Krakoa. I wonder if he was in the big spread of all of the uh, all the Academy X kids in X Factor. No idea. It would just make sense because Akihiro is a big character in that book. Anyway, let's move on to issue five. Yeah. So before we recorded, we started to have a little bit of polarizing conversation about this juggernaut design where juggernaut's the villain in this issue i think it's more successful than dokken and that he again is just a placeholder villain who is there for bobby to beat up literally to meet like fight editorial mandates but plot wise is literally here for bobby to let off some steam after having more painful conversations with his parents and juggernaut is just someone that bobby can unleash hell on because juggernaut is a brute and can take it I really like the cover to this issue, where it's just Juggernaut breaking Bobby into pieces in ice form, and you had some strong negative opinions about this Juggernaut design. I don't hate it. It's much, the coloration on the cover is a lot brighter, poppy, sort of video game fighting sort of aesthetic on the cover, and it's a lot more like muted sort of ultimate universe in the interior. Yeah, I like what the artist who did the cover, um... Marco D'Alfonso. Yeah, I liked what Marco D'Alfonso did with it. Um, And I think that it really suits his style. My main issue is he has tubes along his back, like he's Bane. But, like, Juggernaut's power comes from a magical gem. So if you gave him, like, a gem in his design, 
that would make sense as a like visual way to say, oh, this guy gets his powers from a magical gem. He doesn't have a gem, he has tubes. And I'm like, what are the tubes there for? Doesn't make any sense. But yeah, I, I, it's just Juggernaut is one of those classic Kirby characters who looks cool. Like, especially with X-Men, you only have so many Jack Kirby designs to work with. And frankly, X-Men is probably like the least successful run of like Jack Kirby designing things ever i want to say but the juggernaut design's fucking great and this doesn't look enough like it and the muted colors inside the actual issue don't don't work for me but the opening page is a fantastic juggernaut moment um so this is x-men gold era where for some fucking reason the x-mansion is in the middle of central park which is not a thing that is true in any other x-men era is this... I've never read X-Men Gold. Was this, like, specifically a new building? Or what the fuck? Why are they in Central Park? I don't remember the why. It was just sort of a weird thing from this era. Of, like, I think of them trying to do, like, a good PR. Like, we're here in the middle of New York society. And everything's cool and safe. And you can trust us. But logistically is obviously just, like... Well, you're gonna get attacked all the time. So, actually, this doesn't look great. Like, how many times has that mansion blown up? Why are you just getting it blown up in front of everyone? Um, but anyway, so Juggernaut comes up, like, this... So there's two girls talking on a bench, and you just see this huge shadow fall over them, and you cut up, and it's Juggernaut, and he's holding up a sign that he's clearly pulled from the ground with a map of Central Park on it. <laughs> and, like, the bottom of the sign so there's, like, concrete stuck to it. And he's saying, which way to the turtle pond? Because he's just asking them for direction. So, you know, good Juggernaut usage. I really like Juggernaut. I've always been a big fan of the character. Yeah, he's pretty fun in how he's utilized here. He's largely just a big dipshit the Iceman can punch on. But I think in terms of just like brawny one-time villains you could use, it is at least like a classic X-Men villain who would recognize Iceman from having punched him a million times, especially like in the Lee Kirby stuff that you mentioned. So pretty good choice in my opinion. I'm a little confused on the whole, like, straight-up villain juggernaut timeline, but I'm just- I, I, I don't know what his status quo was in this era, but, like, literally in stuff coming out now, he is not a villain. So, I, I am now wondering when on earth that happened, because I thought this was a thing that was happening before the 2010s, but okay. I think it's been very up and down, just depending on if they felt like having him there to be fought or not. Oh, okay. Since okay. he's just such a recognizable visual as a villain. See, I've 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 enjoyed the stuff that the uh, that Fabian Nicieza did with him recently. So, but this was a good usage of him. Yeah, uh, we do the opening with him asking for directions, and back at the mansion, Bobby is surprised to see that his parents have shown up. Oh, we forgot. I guess technically this goes out of the very end of issue four because they arrive then. And they start talking, and Bobby, exhausted, just goes ahead and just blurts out, I'm gay. And so here at the top of number five, we have them having their horrible reaction. You're kidding me. I'm gay, dude for dude. I want to go on dates with men. And then oh, the, goodness. And then the dad, are you sure? Which, of course, Bobby just has the always reaction of why the fuck would I say it if I wasn't sure? You know, they have the whole sort of, why does Kitty know before the people who raised you? Does everyone here know? If what you're saying is true, 
Yeah, and then you get the whole uh, mom to dad. There aren't any gays on my side of the family. Muties and queers, they must come from you. This isn't on me. And Bobby is just like, you're reacting way worse about this than with any of my superhero stuff. The dad goes, because this time you're actually dead. You heard me. What are you up to us now? You're not giving us grandkids. You want a touch of her men. You're never going to leave this stupid school and grow up to have your own life. So where's the Bobby Drake we raised? Our son's dead. The Iceman wins. See, I would have immediately assumed from the moment he became an X-Man that Iceman was never going to provide you children. Because every single child of an X-Person just winds up getting sent to the future and coming back, like, 20 years older. But also, fuck this guy. It's all... It's all douchebaggery, and it's all just, again, very well-written douchebaggery with just the sort of, it runs in your side of the family, digs, and the just... It's too realistic. It's awful. Yeah, which is why I like it. And I will also give credit to Grace for something that not enough people do, which is that if Quentin Quire is on panel, he is an asshole. I do not care how much anyone wants to redeem this character... Jason Aaron loves Quentin Quire. Quentin Quire's horrible. Not gonna do a full rant about him while we're have to relatively quickly wrap up, but just Quentin Quire is eavesdropping on the fight, saying that it is scrumptious, and then interjects into the family fight to say, for the record, I'm in complete support of marriage equality before Bobby just throws up a gigantic ice wall to keep this asshole out. Why would you ever do any of what Quentin is doing? Why would you listen to someone more or less being disowned for being gay by their parents and go, that's scrumptious? I hate Quentin quite so much. Just heinous. Just horrible. It's a good scene. <laughs> uh, the most punchable X-Man? Yeah. Yeah. Him and Beast. I hate Quentin more. I think Beast has done worse things, quantifiably. But I can at least think of Beast having funny moments, like pretending that he's gay, which I look forward to talking about eventually. But Quentin, there's just no redeeming moment at all. I wonder if any of the other books during that little period had scenes between Beast and Bobby, because they were best friends back in the Silver Age. And then, just like, can you imagine being closeted Bobby and then your best friend from high school is like pretending to be gay as a like dig at his girlfriend i can't think of any scenes they had on panel because they like weren't in the same books main like weren't on the same teams and i can't remember any like little moments either although that could be fun to revisit juggernaut's getting closer to the school to attack uh he's coming to fight someone else it's not really important bobby's gonna be the one to fight him and his parents are still arguing. They're having the whole, did you ever actually sleep with your girlfriends? Well, have you fucked a man yet? Just horrible invasive questions. Bobby ends up leaving to take care of the threat of Juggernaut to get away from the fight. And during all of this, Kitty Pride hands a letter to the parents that Bobby had been writing to try and express and come out in wards in written words because saying out loud was so daunting so she hands them that while he's taking down juggernaut in new york city 
And the two neato uses of powers here I want to point out are when Juggernaut basically fucking smashes him, like, looks like breaks his back, but he survives by just doing the ice vapor thing. And then he reforms into himself with gigantic ice wings, because Iceman can now fly. Why wouldn't he be able to if he can structure everything else with ice? So now we have ice wings. Yeah. The action's really well drawn, and really, um, there's a lot of use of motion lines, and it's like, it's effective use. Um, the art is still just as detailed as everything else that VD's done for the series, but there's a really good sense of motion throughout the fight. Uh, like, I, I really like the way this looks. Yeah, it's uh, quite nicely done. Um, I think of the issues we're reading for today, I think this is probably the best of the fight scenes. Like, I think I like it more than any of the purifier stuff. Well, you got Juggernaut. And ice wings and, like, armies of little snow golems. Yeah, it, like, also just feels like the series has been building up to this and just it, over time, just does more and more extreme things with his powers. So this is sort of a satisfying moment after everything he's dealt with up until now. And after the fight, uh, he dispatches Juggernaut all on his own, which, again, just a moment of this is a competent, experienced superhero. And... Bobby goes back to the mansion where he finds his dad sitting on a bench and they have a brief conversation where they talk about how much they've all hurt each other and it ends on a note with, despite everything earlier, the dad going, Bobby, I love you. Nothing changes that. And then walking away. And it's the most supportive, like genuinely affectionate thing the either of the parent characters has said to Bobby in this entire series. So it's the sort of most hopeful moment that we're ending on for this uh, opening segment of the series and what we're covering today. Yeah, it still feels to me like it's a, uh, I love you, nothing changes that, also disappointed in you. Yeah, like it's definitely not meant to be a... Yeah. Like it's not meant to be a, everything's fine now. You know, it's just sort of a, here is one of those complicated moments, but when you're one of the parties involved, you know, like, is sort of a breakthrough moment, or at least just, like, a really emotionally resonant moment. And, yeah. like, most of the parent stuff, I think it's well-written, and I think it's a solid uh, scene to end on as we sort of close out this opening arc with him and his parents before the rest of the run will be more about Bobby and his sort of friend groups. Yeah, I really loved these. As I said, I, I I wound up unintentionally binge reading all of this and its follow-up series in like a day when I sat down to read these. It's just a really good solid series. Um, and I like stuff with a strong character focus, which like this is just all about Iceman, which isn't something you see very often because he is the most underutilized of certainly the original five X-Men. I I'd argue anyone in the giant size team as well except for like maybe banshee at least banshee got to be flirting with emma frost and generation x oh yeah, that's true yeah gen x and well banshee was dead at this point probably i think probably. he was still dead or was he zombie banshee by then apparently there's a zombie banshee story i have no idea but just like yeah i don't think the character has ever felt like he mattered more than he does here and i think like what it's sort of doing with his arc sort of you know is actively aware of that and that's part of the whole 
addressing how he's always presented himself and been perceived by others. It's just sort of like a satisfying new vision of a character who is classic and yet never focused on. It is, I think, easily one of the best X-Men comics between the big eras of New X-Men and then Krakoa. You know, that sort of 15-ish year period of the late 2000s into the 2010s where a lot of it's just sort of forgotten or glossed over for various reasons. I think this is one of the gems from that period. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, what I've seen of the stuff that's coming out at the same time is this. this is by far the best one. Yeah, because this was coming out during Resurrection when the contemporaries were X-Men Blue and Gold and... The main of her series that were actually good were Generation X and Astonishing, but I think this is better than these. I think it's just a more polished version of what it's trying to do, and it's just a really good example of just an extended character study in a solo. All new Wolverine as well. That was pretty good. Yeah. Uh, With all that said, do you want to go ahead and uh, let everyone know what to read for next week? Yep, so next week we are reading X-Men 1 through 4. I should probably provide additional context for that, huh? Um, it's X-Men volume God knows what, but it's the, it's the Krakoan one. Written by Jonathan Hickman. It's uh, from 2019. 2019. The date should be able to get you to where you can find the correct one. It's probably like volume 6 at this point or something fucking stupid. I think it's higher than that. Oh god. Yeah, actually, yeah, you're right. X-Men get relaunched more than Spider-Man. Spider-Man's on volume 6 right now. I think that X-Men probably like 7 or 8. Yeah, but essentially these are the first four issues of the X-Men, just titled X-Men, no adjectives or anything the X-Men series that came out right after Hawk's Pox in 2019, uh, Jonathan Hickman and Lionel Francis Yu, and I think issue number one has, like, all of the Summers family on the cover. And Wolverine. Yeah, the Summers family and then the Summers lover. Yeah, there's no other way of putting that. <laughs> but, yeah, we're gonna be uh, closing out our X-Men coverage month with a book from the current Krakoa era. Lots of uh, diagram talk, house layouts, economic conferences. Super sexy, super old men, by which I mean Magneto. Island fucking. Also that. Um, Kid Cable. Believe it or not, it's better than it sounds. Rachel getting hit on by her own step-grandmother. We'll get to that. (laughs) But yeah, thank you all for listening. Um... I think it's clear that we both recommend Iceman, so you should check it out. And we recommend the comics for next week, too. So read along if you want, and we'll see you then. Bye. Chris, 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 Chris,